0: Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to our church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Hope you all are having a great uh, first spring weekend. If you guys are anything like like me, I've mentioned this before, I, in terms of things that do good for my soul, there's Jesus' amazing grace for a sinner like me, and then there's melting snow. It's a close second in terms of just making me happy. Therapeutic and um, almost grace imparting. Not quite, but kidding, but close, you know, not quite cleaning, but Uh, anyway, glad you guys are here. We are in Matthew right now, the book of Matthew, and so we're going to dive right in. I'll catch you guys up to speed if you're new to our church and haven't been here for a while or, or, um, yeah, just missed a, a few weeks here. I'll catch you up to speed on where we are. We're in Matthew chapter 18, the first book of the New Testament. We've been preaching through this whole book right now as a church for about a year, over a year now, and we'll be in it through December. Gaining some speed, we're approaching the point in the book where Jesus is starting to head towards Jerusalem. He's been ministering in the Galilean region uh, for the whole book at this point. Most of his ministry has done this Galilean province of uh, the, the northern areas of Israel. And he's about to head south uh, to the Judean province where Jerusalem is. And that's where he's going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. His ultimate goal is to go there and to die. And he's been becoming more clear as the gospel goes on that he has to do that. To be the Messiah, to be a Savior, to be the sent one of God, the promised one of God from an Old Testament perspective, since the beginning of all creation, when all things fell away from God and rebelled against him, God started, he began his work of redemption, and that work began with promises. And began to, to, He chose a nation to work through and to begin to reveal promises through for the whole world, for the cosmos. He's going to restore all things and bring it back to himself, and that ultimately now is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And the way that Christ is talking about it, many in various ways, but he's talking a lot about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, he's going to usher this in, and he's been demonstrating and declaring this idea of gathering people back to himself, sinners who have wandered from him as lost sheep. He's going out to chase them down, identify them, save them through his own blood. Like we just sang in that last song, by the blood of a son we have overcome the grave. So the means by which we're saved and the means by which we have a kingdom of God that benefits us and doesn't shut us out and damn us, is through the blood of the Son. God became a human being, not a plant or an animal or a rock or an angel, but He became a human being to walk among us and associate with us, to advocate for us before Himself, before God the Father, as as a sacrifice of atonement. So the essence of the kingdom is very sacrificial; it's very substitutionary. Jesus is the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world, and in that manner establishes the kingdom. But so as Jesus is building, He's teaching and building the story ahead to the cross, everything before it is anticipating it somehow through word or deed. We're talking a lot about that in this series so far. But a lot of what he's doing too is talking about interpersonal relationships. So the idea is that Jesus is gathering a people for himself, saving them back from a dead and dying world through his own blood. That's about to happen, so he's anticipating this. But he's, he's doing this, but as he's doing this, he's not just reconciling people to himself, though that's the primary. He's also talking about Christians interacting with other Christians and the beneficiaries of the kingdom interacting with the beneficiaries of the kingdom, the people of God interacting with the people of God. So that came up a little bit last week. The past couple of weeks he's been doing this, talking about ultimate reconciliation we have with God and the ultimate love that God shows us first, but then on a secondary level, us showing love to other Christians and non-Christians as well, how that flows like a river from the headwaters of the cross. In particular, he talked about not showing partiality. So if there's a weaker Christian, a less mature Christian, a physically weaker Christian even, or spiritually weaker Christian among you, in whatever way, the Bible says, don't despise them or show partiality to them because God did not show partiality to you. God, the, the God of the Bible is not a partial God. If he in any way showed partiality, if he in any way said they have to have a little bit of strength, a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of wealth before me, To approach me, no one would be saved. But God is a non-partial God. He saves the weak, the poor, the outcast, the disabled, spiritually speaking. He goes after those, which is all of us. But it's for those, the Bible says, who recognize that that's who we are before God. We're the ones that that can enter that kingdom. So, So the Bible says this is what God is like. Reflect that in the way that you interact with each other. Preach it to each other and demonstrate it to each other by not being partial. When you gather as a church like this, and also in, in smaller ways throughout the week. And also as you interact with the world. Are we partial people or not? Do we, because we preach, a partial, we preach a non-partial God. Are we partial in the way that we live? That's a big inconsistency. So the Bible says God is like this. Reflect it in the way. Believe in it. Rest in it. Find joy in it. Reflect it in the way that you live as well. So that was last week. This week Jesus is going to continue to talk today about uh, interactions with other Christians, Christian-to-Christian relationship, and particularly about being sinned against as people of God by other people of God. And so we're, we're talk, calling today when a brother sins against you. That's right from the text, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And uh, so actually just a great thing to, to check in your Bible or uh, put a note, make a mental note of this. If you're newer to this series especially, understand that this is one of those places where Jesus has not just come out and say say this directly, but it's implied because of how much he talks about sin, that sin is clearly, unmistakably, the problem of the Bible because of how much Jesus talks about it. We can't be a faithful reader of the scriptures and conclude that there might be other problems in the world and in our life, but because of how much Jesus addresses it, forgives it, talks about the seriousness of it, where people are headed if they don't get reconciliation from God in it or from it, and stuff like this today, too, just talking about how to deal with it and address it in the context of the church. Jesus is just making it clear over and over and over and over again. Sin and our rebellion from God and our self-worship and our harm of others. And however sin is being manifest in our life, that is the thing that he came to address principally. If we don't, if we don't get that, we're not going to understand his mission or really understand the types of teachings that he gives us today about the kingdom. All right, so let's read it to begin. Matthew 18, 15 to 20, great passage, very, very heavy, but I'm really excited to look at this with you guys. And for some of you, this is going to be brand, uh, brand new, and I'll explain where I'm going to head here after we read it in full. But let's read it to begin. Verse 15, Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, so here's what I want to do with this today is I have several takeaways from this that I'm just going to walk through on and look at a little bit more topically, some things that are very clear and some not so much. But um, what I want to say to begin, though, this is not going to be a class on how to address sin, not just the how to address sin in someone else's life, another Christian's life. We're going to talk about the what. We'll talk about the how here because Jesus does. But what I really want to spend time on is the why. Why do we do this? And we'll talk about some of the whys from Matthew 18 and some of the whys from elsewhere in the scriptures and also the greater gospel, that li- the gospel of Jesus Christ that lies behind all of this and gives a lot of meaning to it. So we'll talk about that too. And also things like church and church membership, which uh, applies a little bit later as well. So that's where we're going to head uh, today. So the first thing I want to talk about, though, is this bigger thing that is, for some of you, you'll, you'll hear this and say, duh. Others of you will say, aha, didn't notice that. Uh, but for me, it's one of the latter things, it's one of those things that are easy to, to read over, but so important uh, to understand and really, not just understand, but really, really get and let sink in and receive into your heart. And that is, Jesus is saying here in the first part, so we'll look at the first clause there in verse 15, if your brother sins against you. Jesus is saying that Christians will... Sin against each other. Christians will sin against each other and against God. So here it says against you. So when a brother sins against you, so when a Christian brother sins against you, but we also know from elsewhere in the scriptures that it's really ultimately God who we sin against. There's Even though we might sin against people and it might be perceived that they're hurt the most, places like Psalm 51 in the Old Testament when David murders somebody and commits adultery, actually with his wife first and then he kills the guy, after that, he says in Psalm 51 that it's really God against you that I've sinned. He's broken before God and says, not, not the guy's name he killed or this individual Bathsheba he slept with, but, this, but before God. I, it's really ultimately you I've hurt, I've offended, I've broken a relationship with my creator by doing this to other people. So clearly it's other people he's sinned against, but ultimately it's God uh, who he's sinned against. So I want to add that, uh, that idea here of sinning against God really in focus is sinning against other Christians, but behind all of that is sin against our Creator always. There's never an exception to that, ever. Understand that. There's never an exception to that. You can never sin against someone else and not offend your Creator and not in some way grieve the Lord. It's it's not possible, according to the Scriptures. But in any case, this idea, generally speaking, of Christians sinning against each other is really important to understand, Many Christians, all of us I think come from this background here at some point, wherever we are, but uh, though Christians might know this generally, that Christians will sin against each other, some are still shocked when they're hurt by other believers. And and shocked maybe justifiably to a degree, but shocked to the point where they might even leave a church at the first hint of hypocrisy or imperfection. And that's a shame. Because the Bible never says Christians are are saved unto moral perfection. Bible never says that Christians are saved unto moral perfection, but saved as sinners, counted righteous, and counted perfect, and reckoned, washed before God through Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf. But that's very different. We're not saved unto moral perfection, we're saved unto the gospel. Got to understand that that difference there. Yes, real resurrection-like transformation happens in a Christian's life by God's grace. It's crucial. It's a necessary part of our salvation experience. But Perfection, morally speaking, is not the goal. Perfection, morally speaking, is not the goal. The goal is Jesus and his forgiving and empowering grace. You guys see the big difference there? Kind of like there's two circles overlapping. We're obviously going to transform. There's some moral change and transformative change that happens in the heart of a Christian because they actually, actually are, spiritually speaking, raised from the dead when they trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. But the goal is is not that. God does not say to you, be, be good before me to be saved. He says, come to my son and be saved. Come to me and rest and be saved. Not to perfection, but to my son who is perfect on your behalf. Very different and distinctly Christian to acknowledge that. Not just for non-Christians to understand that, but for Christians to continually in their life in the church understand that individually and especially together in community. So one of the points here is you will be hurt by other Christians. And if I can talk just about Hiawatha for a specific second too. Some of you guys have come from other churches. Some of you haven't. This is your first church. But you will be hurt here by other Christians. You will be disappointed by other Christians. When people come to me sometimes uh, from other churches, they come to Hiawatha, they've been here for a few weeks, and they think we're the greatest thing, but they've come from an unhealthy church. Not to send you out the door here too quick, but, um, but I tell them, You know, we are not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. We are not the Savior. We will hurt you. We will do something that will disappoint you. We will do something you won't see eye to eye to us with. And not not intentionally, hopefully. That's the case. That's another layer of sin that has to be addressed. But for the most part, not intentionally. Just that we are sinners. We are messed up, selfish, self-absorbed, hypocritical, dark-hearted people that are being saved by an amazing God. And that's... That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we are. That's our identity in community. So, so we have to be careful here at this point, though, to avoid a couple extremes. So it, it, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on this morning, but we have to avoid the, ah, we all sin, it's not that big a deal, don't worry about it type extreme, because obviously the Bible's not going to that extreme, because look at what we just read. Jesus is very particular about addressing sin in other people's lives and your life in a very concentrated, particular way. So we obviously can't go to that extreme. Ah, don't worry about it. No big deal, because God doesn't do that. On the other side of things, we've got to be careful not to, not to label a church at the first sign of dysfunction unredeemable and flee. So when the Bible talks about dysfunction and sin in a church, it says address it together. Forgive it. Be a part of the solution. Confess it to other people, but don't run. And there's certainly, there's certainly times to leave churches, no doubt. There are times for that. That's not the point of today's sermon. I'm not going to really go into that. But in general, uh, the Bible, when it talks to churches about issues, it says, work it out. Confess that sin to each other. Reconcile to God first, afresh. Repent, turn, and reconcile with people. Be a part of the solution. Work out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when the New Testament letters then are written by the Apostle Paul or some other letter then, they're almost always, some guys know this, think about some of the context of these letters, like 1 Corinthians, for example. The context itself is just, just a hot mess, just ridiculously messy. I mean, it's like, you, look at, you read this letter and you think, how in the world are, is there any kind of church going on at all in Corinth with what's going on? But Paul writes to them saying, this is not overcomable because Jesus is stronger than these issues. Come back to him. Repent. You've forgotten the God who saved you. Remember what was at stake, what it cost God to save you, how much he loves you. And use those types of thoughts and truths to work out forgiveness and killing sin issues and pride issues and competition issues and all these things that were going on in Corinth and many of the other letters. And that that there's always at least least whiffs of in a church, if not full-blown brush fires. But when those letters are written, they're almost always dysfunctional. But the point is, they're encouraged to work it out underneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the point that if we run from a church at the first sign of of dysfunction, at the first sign of sin, it's a sign we probably don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ much at all. And we certainly don't understand what the church is all about uh, either. Probably means that we are a religious moralist rather than a biblical Christian. And it also means that we're a consumer, a church consumer. It's about me rather than church being not about me, but about the family, about other people. See the big differences there? And now if you're on this side of things, your expectations about certain things are over here. We're going to be greatly disillusioned, but if they're properly set, if you know who we really are in our sin before a holy God and, and to what we're really saved, the nature of the gospel and what, what the expectations are, what the realities are, spiritual realities for a Christian living a resurrected life, imperfectly, but still in a transformed sense, will be uh, much more in a grounded place to get the most out of church. Really, it's just looking at the gospel. If, if you look at the cross, and we see all of our sin laid upon the God-man, all of our sin, and that's what it did. That's what it did to God. And, and all, all the darkness that was waited upon him, and the sun went out, and the earth shook, and all the stuff that happened on the cross, sin, And then we look at the empty tomb and all the glories and goodness that came on the flip side of that. We've got to just superimpose that onto our church experience because we're the body of Christ. We're going to have tons of messy sin happen in our church and tons of amazingly miraculous things because that's the cross, right? It's the darkest thing. It's the greatest thing. And we're the body of Christ. We're going to be working that out in our experience. Hopefully we'll have, you know, a lot more of this happen because God's good and graceful and he's empowering things to people to change and a lot, a lot of this kind of stuff to happen on a very regular basis, but we'll have seasons of this and always this, actually, to some degree going on. But that's, that's the point. We're not the Savior. We're, we're the mess that Jesus is cleaning over here. We need to constantly see that together in community as we work out the gospel uh, in our midst. So, the church, then, is a community where sinners, whether for the first or millionth time, bring their stuff to Jesus, all the darkest corners of their heart, and he washes them clean and sometimes to other people as well. And so in today's passage then, Jesus is going to get specific with how this should look, specifically with interpersonal sin. Though I think you could widen this out to any type of sin, uh, presuming that you have friends and that you're under the authority of leaders in a church who love you and care about you and want your best. And you have a green light to speak into your life, that you've given them formally or informally. You've given them that green light to say, I want you, I want you to chase me down. I want you to speak into my life when I'm not believing the gospel. When I'm not believing what I what you know I've said to believe I've said, I do believe it, but my life's not reflecting that. And I'm going wayward spiritually. I'm wandering from Jesus. I want someone to be the picture of, like we talked about last week, the picture of that sheep chasing God who goes after the wandering sheep. I, I want that. And so presupposing all that, I'll talk about some disclaimers here as well in a minute. We've got to have that in mind or a lot of this won't make as much sense or we'll misinterpret a lot of it actually too. But presupposing that, uh, this is what uh, Jesus says to do. So we'll talk about the how or the what and the why. The what's important, but the why is even more important. So let's talk about that now. First, the what. Three disclaimers to begin, really important disclaimers that you've got to get from this passage and uh, elsewhere in Matthew. First is, Jesus is not attempting to speak about every single sin situation that will ever exist in a church, but about broader principles, especially interpersonal uh, sin. Second thing is, this is for Christians only here. he talks about brothers, not when anybody sins against you, not when you see any type of sin in any person in the world, period, but when a Christian brother uh, or sister sins against you, and particularly for members of a church if it gets severe enough. So not for non-Christians. First Corinthians 5.12, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Corinth. I mentioned this letter before. One of the issues he writes about is, is this kind of stuff. And he says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So, in other words, outsiders, whether they're gathering with the church or not, and there, there's always non Christians, usually in any church. This is very true here at Hiawatha, people who are interested. In Christ, but not yet crossed that line of faith or belief. So whether they're gathering with the church or not, that they are outside the community, so they're non-Christians. Paul says that we are not to judge them. We are not to do this kind of stuff to them, but only to Christians. In other words, outsiders need Jesus, not morality. You guys see the big difference there? This is not, in other words, a, a paradigm for our evangelistic efforts. <laughs> you know, knocking on your neighbor's door and, and giving them a list of Thirty things they're sucking at. You know, <laughs> like come to come to church. By the way, you know, after that, it's probably not gonna because it's not what God did for us, right? God didn't approach us and condemn us in our sin and say, "Work on it, and then I'll accept you." He accepted us based on what He has done for us. The, the, the relationship we have with God is completely the impetus for it. It's completely placed on His shoulders. His love for us, not our love for Him, though our love is a responsive thing. It's His initiatory love becoming like us and dying for us, taking our sin on his shoulders and dying as a substitute in our place. That's what defines the relationship, not what we have to give him, but what he has to give us. So you could say it this way too. We are not moral crusaders to those outside. We are Jesus proclaimers. We are not moral crusaders to those on the outside. We are gospel proclaimers, Jesus proclaimers, big difference. But Christians, on the other hand, are called to help remind each other in community constantly that they actually have been set free from sin. It's an actual reality. Not a, not a theoretical thing, an actual spiritual reality. That they're they're free from the shackles of what they were norm, what they were previously imprisoned by, namely sin and death. And apply that good news to each other's lives. This is a big part of what the New Testament says about constant. Christian community on a daily basis. We all need to be on the receiving end and the giving end in some capacity of this. And we'll talk about this as as this morning goes on as well. And more about the why. So that's the second disclaimer for Christians only. The third is uh, this should accompany tons of spiritual self-examination before we approach others about their sin. Matthew 7, same book, uh, Jesus' words in, in 7, 1 to 5, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, one of the big things we take from Jesus' teachings here back in chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Is that addressing sin is actually primarily a mere issue for us. So, this is a great, this is, this is a distinctly Christian way to live as well, by the way. When, when you see sin in the world or in another Christian's life, even if you're the one sinned against, the first thing you should think is, I've done the exact same thing before. And I've actually done worse things because I have a log in my eye and that's a speck. I've done worse things before God and they may be the exact same thing actually to the offending party in this case. And I need to, I need to come to Christ, and, and if I haven't already, and confess that, be washed of that by his grace afresh, and work on killing that in my life so that I'm not conceited when I go about addressing it in someone else's life. I want to talk about that much more today. There's a lot more to say about that, but that's an important disclaimer before I go into the rest of uh, the general instructions for addressing sin in others' lives uh, in verses 15 to 7. But let's do that now. So the general instructions from verses 15 to 7 are this, and I'll just read this quickly to recap what Jesus says. When sinned against, first go to the person privately and help him or her see the sin graciously, lead that person back to Jesus, reconcile with them. If they do not listen, secondly, uh, bring a few others who know the person well to again prayerfully and graciously expose the sin and lead them back to Jesus for forgiveness If they still do not listen, bring the church, meaning the larger group, sometimes including the elders of the church, to again try and help restore the person spiritually, lead them to repentance, turning from their sin, and fresh belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. If there's even still resistance, they should then be treated like a Gentile or tax collector, which is like a non-Christian, an outsider, and unassociated with. Paul the Apostle calls this principle handing over to Satan... In 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, and I'll, I'll read that here. Uh, you are to deliver this type of individual. So after all the Matthew chapter 18 stuff has been tried, it's ongoing, unrepentant sin of a Christian. Uh, deliver this type of man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This is the ultimate goal, though. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the point is to treat them as though they're unsaved, even though they probably aren't, or yet so that they'll be freshly freaked out into realizing that the way they're living is not consistent with their beliefs, and they're putting in jeopardy what that first day of profession and confession was for them whenever it was when they came to Christ. If they're not really living as though it's true uh, in their life. And so the, the goal is to treat them as though they're unsaved so that they'll come back and want Jesus afresh. That's so that their spirit will be saved. in the day. There's this physical demonstration of outcasting. You're treating them that way, he's saying to the point that they will want Christ again and, and, and come back. So it's not for ultimate ostracism. It's for, it's for reconciliation and restoration back into, into the body of Christ. All right, so understand here a couple of things more with the, the what. Understand this kind of stuff happens all the time, and not necessarily in this exact order, in this exact manner, and usually not very publicly at all, per Jesus' instructions here in Matthew 18. Most of it, with the first step, happens very casually, behind the scenes, and privately, ways in, in ways that no one ever knows about except the two Christians or three involved or whatever it is, and God. And that's healthy. Privacy for much of this is very important. Jesus says, you and that person alone to begin with, and Christ with you, because he says later on, when two are gathered, there I am with them. So Jesus is there too. When two are gathered, I am there with them, helping with this. But privacy is really important. It's not say post to Facebook persons or Twitter another person's sins. Handle it privately. So, friend of friend, this will happen. This does happen all the time. Or leader to leader, someone you know really well who just says, helps you see this and just preaches the gospel to you and prays with you. A lot of it happens very, very casually. I love you, but your your way of life now is not consistent with what you profess. I know you profess this. This is something that's harmed me. It's harmed other people. And I just want to I want to let me read you this passage. It talks about this. Let's pray together. Happened very casually like that happens all the time uh, here at Hiawatha. But you and some of you have been very involved in that. Some of you haven't. You weren't sure it happens, but do understand it happens very very casually. And usually, usually, happens and in, in works at that first stage where there's an addressing of sin, and the Holy Spirit's working on both hearts, and there's reconciliation, forgiveness, a leading back to Jesus, and and it's it's all good. But. This can also get much more complex as well and formal and public as Matthew 18 also prescribes when there's continual resistance and of a church member as well. This is where church membership, and so even higher than just being a regular attender of, of our church, this is something we have in place as a policy per Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, and most churches have something like this in place because the scriptures teach on it. But especially for a church member to continually resist the callback to the gospel. And the elders get involved, it gets it gets a little bit more public or at least more involved with more people. So, for example, churches will in some cases make public the sins of other church members when they are constantly, in a continual sense, threatening the safety of other people. If there's a guy who's preying on women in the church, we're gonna mention that from the pulpit and say this person's not repenting of this and he's harmful and need to know who it is, and they're not welcome back. And so we're going to be very jealous for, in this case, our, our women and to protect them and, and let the church know who this person uh, is. And you know, any church that cares at all would do that. Uh, but when, also when, if there's a person that threatens the safety of other people in that manner or even a lesser level, we'll do that. When there are leaders in question who have affairs with other people, people need to know why they're not a pastor anymore or why they're not an elder anymore, why they're not a deacon anymore, why they're not on staff anymore and what happens. So that could, that could be an instance, too, where more people not just get involved, but the church actually ends up knowing as well. Again, this is all, this is all from Jesus' statement on get the church involved and how that plays out. Or finally, another example, there could be major theological doctrines being taught against in our community group. So things that we're close-handed on as a church and uh, that are... Not just being disagreed on, and that's totally fine, but actually being propagated against. So teachings that are flat out contrary to it, that are being taught in community groups, for example, and people being led away into contrary belief that we think is theologically harmful. That would be another situation where we, where we would go through the whole process in Matthew 18, start very privately, and would probably be done there. But if it doesn't, and there's still resistance, this would be something that the church would have to know. We'd have to protect, as elders, we'd have to protect people Uh, in in this public manner if it would not be turned from or repented of um, or laid down by the sinning individual. So that's a few examples of how you have two things. You have the very casual dimension of this and the very complex or the very formal or the very public. And there's a whole spectrum in between, but most are on that casual side. If you guys want to know more about this or read more about this, I'm not going to quote this today, but we have a, a formal governing document here at Hiawatha Church we call our Constitution and Bylaws that lays out all this stuff in a much more precise manner that I had uh, Spencer print out a bunch of copies on the info table over here. Go ahead and grab that. I think it's Article 7 in our bylaws. and explains more of the biblical basis for what we call church discipline. Uh, Most churches have a a word for it. We call it that as well. All of our members especially need to be aware of that because they're most under the elder authority to potentially, potentially if if God leads and if it's needed, um, to uh, execute that for members. Article 7 bylaws. Okay, so that's all, that's all the how. So Jesus says, this is, what I want you to, this is how I want you to address sin in general. There will be some exceptions to that, but primarily interpersonal sin. This kind of thing needs to be cultivated in the culture of, of a church. The bigger thing, though, I think, is why do we do this? And I have two big things here. Uh, one is a little more obvious from the passage. The other, not so much. But first is, because the Bible says too, it just says do it, right? So I have to submit to that. Why do we do this? The Bible says to do it. It helps, I think, a Christian community take sin and gospel very seriously. It actually creates a lot of health in a church. Every list I've seen personally that I, of markers of health in a church that um, that I think are accurate. I guess right. Of course I do. But um, that have this on it. So uh, every list has not necessarily right at the top, but marks of a healthy church has has some form of of church discipline polity to help people really adore Jesus and take their sin very seriously to get back to him constantly at the same time to the point where the absence of this stuff is very destructive to a church if churches don't do this at least casually uh, it's long term very very harmful uh, to a church because it lowers the severity of sin and therefore in the long run lowers the need for God's grace if you lower sin you lower the need for God's grace. You lower the need to adore his amazingness and appreciate his love and bask in his light, in his cleansing power. They're always connected. So it's very harmful to not have these things in place. So the big issue then with ongoing, and one of the key words I'm going to use all day here is the ongoing idea. Make sure you hear that. The scriptures say in Romans 6.1, for example, Christians will not continue in sin. Christians will sin, period but they won't continue repeatedly, especially when they're in community, when they're called back to Jesus, they won't continue in that because they're actually saved from it and God's doing a work in their life at the same time. So got to have that tension. But because of that, this side of things, the big issue with ongoing unrepentant or unturned from sin is that it's an expression of unbelief in the gospel. Namely, that we actually are new creations. Like I said before, we're actually, not theoretically, but actually saved being pulled away from rebellion, being pulled away from self-rule, being pulled away from self-deification. The Christians' work on a daily basis is to actually apply this thought to the way they live, actually believe it, and apply the word, as 1 Corinthians 4 said, apply the word of truth to, way they, to the way that they think and live. It's not just something we're washed of, but something we're empowered to resist by the grace of God. So this type of stuff in Matthew 18 helps a church, an individual Christian in this particular case, remember this and apply it to the way they live so they can be killing sin on a regular basis to the glory of God. Hebrews twelve fifteen two is great on this. It says, writing to the church, broad church uh, addressing sin issue here, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Love that command. This is what the Bible says to you Christian, to me, to us. What are you going to do on a daily basis as a Christian? I get that question often and it's a great question. I've had that question before. What am I supposed to do on a daily basis as a Christian? If it's not by works that we're saved, what should I do on a daily basis? There's a lot of things to do. This is one of them. What are you doing on a weekly basis at least to ensure that people you know well are enduring in the grace of God? See to it that no one fails to obtain it. But they remember it and appreciate it and adore it and don't wander from it. And he continues that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So that's the first thing. Uh, the Bible says to do this. and It brings a lot of health to a church community. And again, contrastingly so, it helps us with unhealth. It helps us with, with sin disease. helps us to, to do the surgery on it with the gospel of grace as our scalpel. Second thing then is to gain a brother, to pull right from Jesus' words, to, to gain back another Christian who we may have been sinned against by. And I have here too as well uh, to demonstrate then, what God does for us by lovingly exposing sin and forgiving people, again, the spirit of how Christ has first done that for us. Ephesians 4:32 says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, but a lot of people put a period right there. There is no period after another. He continues, "As God in Christ forgave you." The Bible does this all over the place. Forgive, be kind, in the spirit of how you've first been shown kindness by God on the cross in the spirit of how you've first been shown forgiveness by God on the cross. That's how he's forgiven your sins, through the means of him dying for you as a substitute. He's released you of that debt. And and, and all of that is love and kindness as well. So in the spirit of that, underneath that, do that interpersonally. Reconcile and forgive in the spirit of how Christ has first done that for you. Demonstrate it. Declare it to each other and demonstrate that as well by lovingly exposing sin when necessary and forgiving people in love. Speaking that truth in love, Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament. Also, verses 18 to 20, and a couple of comments on this, how how closely connected to a church's pronouncement of forgiveness and experience of reconciliation he is. Verses 18 to 20 are a little bit nebulous, but let me read them and I'll explain what he's saying. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is really fascinating here. And again, it's linking Jesus himself with, in this case, a a Christian's pronouncement of reconciliation or forgiveness or the help that they give in helping a person to address and kill sin, Jesus himself is wrapped in that. To the point where Jesus is basically saying here, when you address sin tactfully in love and pronounce forgiveness, it's like me doing it. When you release and loose people to love and forgiveness, and in some cases as well, when you bind, when you exclude people from the community to give people over to Satan from 1 Corinthians 5 or from Matthew 18 to not associate with them when you bind, it's me doing that because it's me they're rejecting. It's my offer of grace they're rejecting. When you go to someone, in Matthew 18 ways, you're offering them Jesus afresh. You're offering them acceptance. You're offering them forgiveness and grace. But if they reject that, it's bas- as a Christian, it's basically like as a non-Christian, you're saying, I don't believe you, Christian. I don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I don't believe it ever happened. I don't believe it's sufficient. I don't believe it's enough. I reject. So it's really a, a microcosm, if not a one-to-one correlation with rejecting Jesus. So here Jesus is just saying when the church is doing this, when there's a true Christian moving towards another person addressing that sin, forgiving, the Lucian idea is the good news. It's actually like Jesus doing that and bringing people back together, which is why, so see then, because of Christ's presence in this, helping us see our sin, find forgiveness, we need this type of activity in church because we need Christ. We need him. So churches then should be places of widespread personal repentance and interpersonal reconciliations all the time that flow from the great reconciliation that we have from God through Jesus. Not a place completely void of any and all trouble. Yes, here that's super, super important to get. Churches should be widespread places of interpersonal reconciliations and personal repentance all the time that flow from the gospel. Not a place completely void of any and all trouble. Because the latter is not a church. It's a demonic charade. A kingdom of forced smiles. Not a true messy bride saved by the greatest bridegroom of all time and growing messily in that love. Can I see the big difference? The, 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 The latter thing there is just a kingdom of forced mask wearing. It's a forced smiles kingdom. It's a demonic charade. It's, it's ridiculousness. It's not, it's not seeing Jesus for who he is and seeing us for who we really are in a very low sense. We've got to keep it like this. We can't go like this. We're not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. We're the messy bride. All right. So uh, two more additional takeaways from this uh, to give you guys that relate, that I think are really important because some of you guys are hearing this and you're understanding maybe, but... Um, you've never been in a place where you've done this ever. You've never applied it to your life. You've never seen a church do this, and you're wondering how this really can look practically uh, in in your life. Now at Hiawatha Church, whatever church you are a part of presently or will be uh, in in the future. Two things here I want to give you as takeaways, and I'll conclude is, first of all, this is encouraging widespread gospel proclamation and application among the church. So if you feel like there's no way I could ever do this, I'm a brand new Christian myself. I hardly know anybody uh, here at the church. If you think that, then just start with knowing the gospel a little bit better. Just start with reading your Bible a little bit more. Start with knowing who Jesus is. Start with knowing what happened on the cross. Start with knowing what's true about you in Jesus Christ. Because most of the time, when we speak and live out and encourage the gospel in a variety of ways to each other, those little callbacks to Jesus in the spirit of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 happen pretty much organically and without much effort or confrontation. You guys understand that? When when you know the gospel well, the thing that will bring people back to Jesus is just Jesus. If you know him and ooze him and speak in hymns and spiritual songs like Ephesians 4 says constantly, you're probably talking to someone all the time, your own heart included, who are steeped in sin. And you're encouraging them. (laughs) And so you're bringing people back just by knowing Jesus and loving him and making him a central part of your life. So if you feel if like no one could ever do this, just start small and start with knowing Christ more, knowing the gospel better, and making it more of a vocal and demonstrated part of, of your life. But then it gets higher too. This also involves, second thing here, it involves taking church community itself very seriously. This is what I mean by this. This type, this Matthew 18 type of accountability and love, and challenge, and forgiveness is simply not possible if you're a nominal attender at a church, right? It's not possible, because you don't know anybody, and no one knows you. And the leaders don't have that green light to implement this kind of stuff into your life. Matthew 18, 15-20 is only possible if you are known well and deeply by your church, and if you know others well. In some cases, only if you're a member of a church. So what this is a call to, and it's all presupposed in Matthew 18, what this is a call to is deep, submissive church involvement. Church is not about you. It's not about me. It's coming under the authority of Jesus Christ and his people. Some of you are like, I'm all about being under the authority of Jesus Christ, but not the church. I'll never do that. The Bible never separates the two because the church is the body of Christ. If you claim to love Jesus but you know don't like his bride, it's, it's like saying... Uh, you know, me like saying to Peter, Peter, I love hanging out with you, but I can't stand Becky. So, sorry. You want to hang out sometime? Sorry, Becky. I can say that because I know Becky. But um, Peter's going to be like, I'm never going to hang out with you, right? You can't love Jesus and hate the church. People say it all the time. It drives me nuts. You can't do it. It's like saying to a husband, I can't stand your bride. Let's go golfing. You know, you can't do it. You have to be under the authority of Jesus and his people at the same time, this is why Jesus talks in these binding, loosing terms and linking him so close, authority so closely to the church. And the, and, the, and the preaching of the word and the sacraments are all administered by the people of God as extensions of Jesus himself. All that stuff, which you could spend hours on. But this is a call to deep and submissive uh, church involvement. So for some of you, you're brand new today. And this is maybe applying a little bit, but maybe not so much. But wherever you guys are spiritually, wherever your church home, most of you are here. For some of you, this just means getting to know others better, getting involved, serving, helping out, going on our spring retreat. Probably one of the best things you can do, actually have other people told me this in the past years with our spring retreat, it's what kept them at our church because it's forced community. It's like, it sounds bad, but you can't go anywhere, right? I mean, I guess you get in your car and go home, but it's like, there you are. I'm like, oh, there's more, high love the people. So, you know, if you're an introvert, a little bit harder, but just do it. I'm an introvert. It's just great. It's so good. Go, meet people. Uh, get get to know them better. And so you make some actual, and community, community, here's the thing. Community will never fall in your lap. You have to work at it. I think we think sometimes with just community, we're going to go into a church and it's going to be great. 16 people invite me over for dinner and they'll be my best friends the next day and it'll be so great. It's not going to happen that way, right? It never happens that way, rarely anyway. It takes work to have friendships, to get to know people to the point where you can do Matthew 18 stuff with them and you're a trusted voice for them. And they're a trusted voice for you. That takes work and time, but it's not going to happen overnight. Give it a long, prolonged season at church, and and you be on the working end, too, of trying to establish those friendships, those people that that you know, and have those Christ community friendships together. For others of you, it means getting baptized and pursuing membership, where all this happens at, at the highest level. Like one of the advantages of church membership, and there are many, Uh, One is, and I've alluded to this, is that a member gives a green light to elders and other members to chase them down if they're wandering from the faith. And for regular attenders, we have that to a degree. We'd obviously pursue them if they are wandering, for sure, but we don't quite have the same degree of of green light. A non-member then has not said, formally anyway, I want a friend or an elder to chase me down if I'm wandering from God because I'm prone to wander. In fact, I want Jesus to chase me down through friends and elders if I'm blinded by my sin. Because when I'm blinded, I'm not thinking lucidly. I'm blind. And I need someone in that moment to come help me and present the gospel afresh to me because I've forgotten it. And what a scary place. There's no scarier place ever than that. Uh, Seth, so a lot of you guys know Seth Doran. Uh, he's a recent, uh, he's a regular tender that became a member here recently. And he said this to me, and I got his permission to share his quote and his name, uh, because I was going to quote him anonymously, but he said, mention my name because people wa- might want to talk to me about membership. So I'm like, oh, thank you. All right, well, I'll <laughs> quote you then. Careful what you give permission for, because I will do it. Uh, but anyway, so he says this about the importance of membership and, and wanting this type of accountability that he did not have before it. He says this. I not only want the privilege of association with Hiawatha, but the accountability that naturally comes with publicly representing her as well. As sweet as the fellowship is when gathered together, it's all too easy to slip into a separate, more spiritually casual lifestyle outside of that gathering. And so although it is humbling in one sense, there is a calming, even energizing reassurance in knowing that a pastor, elder, or church leader, or I would just add church friend, of some kind will do more than just pray for me should I wander from the faith to any degree. With membership, I've essentially given the leaders the okay to physically track me down and direct me back to the love of my Savior. This is the accountability I know I need and therefore highly desire. Let me conclude with three things. First of all, rejoice. The gospel's behind all of this, you guys, as always. Jesus has gained you back as a brother. He's gained you back with his death and resurrection. He's reconciled you to himself. All the stuff he's saying do interpersonally, remember, he's always, he's always done these things first for us. So always look for that when you interpret the Bible. He has gained us back. We're, we're, a, we're a brother now, the Bible says, with, with Christ. We are a child of God if we are in him. We've been reconciled. Though, though we greatly sinned against him, he has approached us, exposed our sin. Jesus always does this in the Bible. He exposes sin but doesn't condemn He says, you are incapable, but I love you. You are a great sinner, much bigger sinner than you ever thought you were, but you're loved, and I'm going to die for that sin. So not condemning, but freeing, but still exposing. We can embody that with our acts of forgiveness and how he died for us and washed us. We can embody that by also exposing this sin in other people, friends that we know. Uh, embodying this truth in tactful second thing, embody this truth in tactful, loving, grace-filled confrontations with Christians you know well, and to whom you are a trusted voice all along, staring your own sin in the face, so you don't get conceited. So this is just saying, reconcile with people. If there's someone at Hiawatha right now or in your life a Christian that you're not reconciled with, put that at the very top of your to-do list this week. The Bible's very clear that has to be done even before it says before taking communion. In other words. Not just taking communion, but actually worshiping with the church. Reconciliation among Christians is so critical because we claim to have reconciliation with God. How can we live without reconciliation with other Christians? So do that. Or in a heightened level, with Matthew 18 stuff, is there someone you know well who is wandering from Jesus? Go after them. Pray for them. Help them see. Be the truth in their life and lead them back to Christ. If there's there's a name on your mind right now, you're probably the one Jesus is going to use to chase, them, to chase them down and find them and bring them back. And then third, get heavily involved in a church. Gather with other Christians. You can gather with Jesus. Love them, know them, help them, be, be helped by them. Be submissive to them as you are to Christ. One of the best decisions you can make to ensure your future spiritual health with Christ is to get deeply involved in a church who loves Jesus, period. To the point where... Matthew 1810 to 15, accountability and reorientation of the gospel can actually happen. even Not just in casual ways, but also in, in the heightened ways, formal ways if necessary. So do that too. With all this, let me pray. God, thank you for uh, today, for the gospel of Matthew 18. Thank you for uh, reminding us that you are a brother to us. Uh, you are, um, as the scriptures say, a friend of sinners, a friend who's closer than a brother. The Old Testament says, uh, you are that close. You have become like us to die for us and gain us back. You've exposed our sin but not condemned because you've died for it. you freed us. God, I pray in the spirit of that we would have a culture here at Hiawatha Church that lovingly, tactfully, mostly privately uh, helps people see where they're wandering and also a constant community where we're seeing our own demonstrations of sin in front of us because we've done equally bad things. Seeing that as well, where, where we heighten sin so that your grace gets all the bigger because that's how we're supposed to see it. So sin will get big, but grace will abound all the more, as Romans 5 says in the New Testament. Thank you that your grace always abounds, always stronger than sin because nothing's stronger than you. Uh, God, I pray for a culture here that, that is humble and that is gracious and forgiving and reconciling in the spirit of how you've done all those things uh, for us first on the cross. Uh, in Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.